I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This edition of How to Be a CEO is brought to you by the AXA Startup Angel Competition. I'm Sharmadine Reed, founder and CEO of The Stack World, and I'm here to help you turn your business dream into reality. There are six chances to win the competition, including two top prizes of £25,000, mentoring from myself and leading UK founders, plus business insurance for a year, thanks to AXA. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash AXA Startup Angel for details on how to enter and complete your entry by the 2nd of June, 2024. Good luck. ES Audio. For a couple of years, Lime seemed to be one of those companies that pops up in exactly the right place at precisely the right time. It started off in San Francisco in 2017, hiring out electric bikes just as the world was taking climate change more seriously. The ink on the Paris Agreement had only dried the year before. In 2018, it was valued at $1.1 billion, a full-on unicorn. In 2019, it doubled its value. Then came 2020. When COVID hit, it was unexpected. And I remember going to a meeting on all hands and somebody said, we're going to run out of cash this year if revenues are down 90%. And I remember very clearly saying that we won't. Wayne Teng became CEO of Lime during the pandemic, taking over from its founder, Brad Bow. At the time, the company's value had dropped to around $550 million. Social distancing had forced service closures in 99% of its markets. How do you come back from that? Sometimes I see optimistic leadership and people think I'm talking about blind optimism. Uh, That is not what we're talking about. This is not a Pollyannish, everything is going to be okay. Optimistic leadership is about seeing the problems clearly, but always knowing and always believing that we can change that. I'm David Marlson from the Evening Standard. Lime's had a complete turnaround from those dicey days. It's now operating in 280 cities in more than 30 countries. It claims to be the world's largest scooter company and the biggest e-bike operator outside China. But when we meet Wayne, I want to know, what was that first day like? I joined Lime four plus years ago, actually, as the um, head of operations, COO. It was was about a year after... Uh, Lime started and became CEO about uh, two and a half years ago at the beginning of COVID. And I would say when I think about the challenge, it's really been a, I would say many, many, many challenging moments. Um, You know, certainly from early days, it's about how do we make this operations work? How do we make the economics work? How do we prove to cities that we can be a benefit to the local community? We know internally that our mission is to build the future of transportation in a shared, affordable, most importantly, carbon-free, that we want to tackle this huge challenge around transportation. It's the number one source of carbon pollution in Europe. It's the number one source of carbon pollution in North America. And by offering lightweight electric alternatives. But I think when we first came out, there were lots of questions. You know, is it actually good for the community? Is it actually good for the environment? And I think we spent a lot of those early uh, years showing that we are, that we are a net benefit to the communities that we serve. 
I think when, when, I, when COVID hit, it was unexpected. You know, I think you build scenarios going into every single year, but you never build a scenario where 90% of your revenues go away in a week, um, which is what happened in those early days of COVID. And, you know, I think we, we thought we had nine months of runway. Suddenly we had to raise emergency funding um, that month or we're going to run out of cash. The fortunate thing is we, we did find investors. Uber uh, came in and I became CEO as part of that round. And my first day, we had to let go of a significant portion of the company. Um, we had a major down round in, this, in, in our shares, which is always challenging to explain to investors and employees. And the hardest thing was we were two months into COVID. And I think everyone's question was, well, how quickly can we get out of this? What does it mean to the business if COVID continues? And a lot of that um, early days was managing through those hard moments, uh, managing through it with optimism. We don't always have the answers, um, but what we know is that the things we're working on, improving the fundamentals of the business, serving the communities, putting our riders in cities first, those are the things that are gonna get us through. And I think the, the, the great thing coming out of COVID now is Lyme is today bigger than ever. Um, we're gonna have our most profitable year ever. But to get here, we had to go through, I would say a lot of challenges and a lot of hard days. Yeah, just a little bit for you. I mean, what a time to become CEO of a company when you've got all of those challenges going on at the moment. And you said that, that you had to remain optimistic. Did you, all, did you almost, as CEO, feel a responsibility to keep optimistic, to try and motivate people through this? And, and, and did you feel optimistic the whole time? Well, I, you know, I think about optimistic leadership as one of the most important qualities for any leaders to have. And, and I'll say, sometimes I say optimistic leadership and people think I'm talking about blind optimism. Uh, that is not what we're talking about. This is not a Pollyannish, everything is gonna be okay. Optimistic leadership is about seeing the problems clearly, seeing the problems realistically, articulating that problem, but always knowing and always believing that we can change that, we can solve that, that tomorrow doesn't have to look like today, that our actions ultimately um, will determine the outcome. So I think when we're going through the early days um, of the pandemic, it is, it's not about pretending like the pandemic's not there. It's not about pretending like problems aren't there. In fact, if you do that, then you don't make the hard choices to improve the business. And so we had to make some hard choices quickly. And I think that's also sometimes a mistake people make is that we don't want to face the music. And by doing that, we actually prolong the pain. And so our first day, it's like, we gotta, we gotta make cuts. We gotta make people cuts, cost cuts. We gotta improve the business quickly. But by doing that and by improving margins, by gaining market share, tomorrow doesn't have to look like today. I, I still remember, you know, as part of that round, we raised $170 million. That's not bad. That's not bad. But the year prior, we lost more than that. And our revenues were down 90%. And I remember going to a meeting at All Hands and somebody said, we're going to run out of cash this year if revenues are down 90%. And I remember very clearly saying that we won't. Because if you're assuming we're going to do everything the same as last year, we're not. We're going to make changes. We're going to make improvements. We are not. We are absolutely not going to run out of cash. We had two years of runway. We raised a $418 million round at the end of it. Today, we have more capital, more runway than ever in the history of the company. Because that's the optimistic leadership. And it's not about, it is about seeing your problems clearly, but then always knowing that you can solve those problems. Um, and you can work through it. So one of those problems that you mentioned at the beginning there was talking to cities to make cities realize that having Lyme involved in them can help. 
How did you approach those conversations? What kind of things were you telling them? How, I mean, how can you show them it's an advantage to have our company in, in your city? That's a great question. You know, I, I think the right approach is always to partner with cities. Um, I think sometimes, you know, there, there's a feeling that we're, we're going to come in and, you know, in opposition to the city. I think that never works. You know, when I talk to um, city transportation officials, we start by saying, what are your problems? And the remarkable thing is the problems that cities face are very, very similar. Almost every city will tell you, um, we face a problem around congestion. We face a problem around affordability. And the hardest problem we face is that we face a major challenge around climate change. Almost every city in, um, in, in Western Europe, certainly m most American cities, have set very, very aggressive goals to hit the Paris Climate Accord. And there's no path to getting there without fundamentally reducing our reliance on cars. And electric cars is not gonna get us there. And this is the, this is the actually fallacy, um, is that the, the reason why cars consume so much energy is because it's heavy. The average car is 2,000 kilograms. When you use a 2,000 kilogram car to move a 80 kilogram human, all the energy is in moving the car. And so even if you go to electric, you don't fundamentally solve that. In fact, the majority of the world's electricity is not renewable. The only way to reduce carbon emissions is to reduce the weight, the weight of the vehicles. And this is our um, fundamental product. How do we bring more people away from cars into lightweight electric vehicles? So we start by saying, if that's your number one issue, we got a solution. In fact, this is a solution. If you go to a city like Amsterdam, Copenhagen, that's been implemented at a broad scale, that's been able to transport cities, uh, people around cities all around the world. So that's one. Two, not only is it greener, it's also cheaper. The average trip on micromobility is a fraction of the cost of driving, especially now when we see when we have energy inflation and gas prices are going through the roof and the cost of transportation is going up. Lightweight vehicles is one of the cheapest ways to move around. And third, if you care about congestion, do you know what's causing congestion? Cars. The way we reduce congestion is not to build bigger roads. It's not to create more parking. It's to actually reduce the number of cars going to our cities. That is the only way we have ever solved congestion. And so when we start by saying, what is your problem? And let us, let us share how Lime can be part of the solution. We have found over time, very, very receptive audiences in cities all around the world. Have they become more receptive? I mean, I mean, I know Lime's a relatively new company, but a lot has changed in the last five, six years, particularly towards attitudes towards climate change, haven't they? So have cities, have the public actually, the people using your vehicles, have, they, have, have attitudes changed there? Are they more receptive? You know, I, I think that, I absolutely think that the, the reception uh, from public, from cities is, is growing and it's growing rapidly. But change takes time. You know, oftentimes I have to point out certain things because most of us who live in the, the Western world have become accustomed to believing that cars all have an inherent right to our streets. Everything else is a nuisance relative to cars. That is not some sort of God-given law of the universe. You have to challenge decades, decades of thinking. You know, I'll give you a couple examples, right? So, you know, oftentimes people say, you know, you have to improve parking. Um, in our cities, and absolutely. And we invest in technology to create um, digital corrals. We do education in person and app. We find riders who don't park correctly. We have foot patrol going around to fix parking. But if you actually go to any city, it is not the abundance of e-bikes and e-scooters that is creating a parking problem. In the city of London, there are 6.8 million parking slots. In the city of London, all the um, scooters and e-bike operators combined 
have less than 20,000 vehicles. And so, and each car parking can fit eight to 10 e-bikes and e-scooters. And so if you actually think about what is creating the parking problem, it is the abundance of cars. And what if we actually took a 10th of the parking spots and turn it into micro-mobility parking for both personal and shared? We would, we would dramatically, we would have no parking issue. But it's the fact that we today over allocate to cars and under allocate to new modes that are growing and frankly better for, for communities. That's why it, it, you see it sometimes because you force a lot of our bikes to park on pedestrian streets and you create that conflict on the pedestrian streets. The second you explain it, people are like, oh yeah, there are 6.8 million car parking slots in London. Gee, that seems like a lot. And, and you start to have a different conversation um, with the community, but it takes time because we're so used to, we're so used to cars being the dominant way we move that we are blinded. We're blinded to the effects of cars and new modes takes time for people to get used to. Okay, there's a traffic warden lurking outside. So while I pop out to check the car, why don't you have a listen to these adverts and hit that follow button so you never miss an episode of How to Be a CEO. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I mean, is the, the, the very infrastructure of how we've created the environments we now live in, these urban environments, is that what's causing the most problem for, for companies like yours, for people trying to switch to electric vehicles? Yeah, David, it's a fantastic point. In fact, in almost every city in the world, there are as many parking spots as there are people. And yet we can't find parking spots. And, and, and the reason why that is, is because we are dramatically subsidizing parking. 95%, 95 plus percent of the time, cars are idle. Nobody's driving it. It just sits there parked on the side of the street. And, and, if, you, and if you look at the cost of parking, you can, if you want to own a coffee shop in a busy part of London, you're paying tens of thousands of pounds to, to rent that space. You want to park a car outside of it, a couple of pounds a day, maybe free, depending on where you are, that car parking spot has an inherent value. 
And during the pandemic, we saw it because we took back some of these streets and we made it pedestrian only. We allowed people to open cafes and stores and a community just shifted. We created so much subsidies and parking that we've essentially, everybody who has a car just leaves their car there 95, 96% of the time. That's why regardless of how much parking you have, now you have two cars that they park there. You're not solving the parking problem. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, your, your, David, your question was like, you know, what are the challenges? I absolutely think one of the challenges is I don't even want a preference to micromobility. I want to level the playing field for, um, for alternative modes of transportation. You know, when I think about cars in almost every city around the world, we heavily, heavily subsidize cars. I've mentioned parking. People estimate hundreds of billions of dollars of parking subsidies every single uh, year going into parking. Roads, we tax um, people pretty generically around the, the, the city to fund roads, but, but the people who use it most heavily are not always taxed. This is why I also love uh, Mayor Sati Khan's ULA's ultra low emission zones, because we're actually start finding and saying, let's make sure the people who are, who, are do, who are driving, who are emitting are the ones paying. And the biggest cost, the biggest cost of transportation that we are not charging is the cost to our planet. 25 to 30% of our emissions in Europe and the United States comes from transportation. The vast majority of that is personal cars and trucks. We believe in the course of the next couple of decades, there's gonna be trillions of dollars of cost as a result of climate change. So the third of that is coming from cars. Nobody pays for that. This is the ultimate tragedy of the commons. And so when I think about what I would love is just level the playing field. Let's make sure there are bike lanes on every street. Let's make sure that we're sharing the parking spaces in a fair and equitable way. Let's make sure the people who are using the roads pay for it. And let's make sure that people who are emitting and is the source of the greatest crisis we will face um, in our lifetime against our climate, um, the people who are emitting are the ones who are paying the price and through a carbon tax. If we simply level the playing field, you're gonna see people shift out of cars into alternative transportation. So once you're in a city, is there not another challenge in getting the people of this city to adopt your technology? Because, I mean, it's all, it's all fairly routine now, but originally, I mean, it's kind of a weird idea, isn't it? I, just, I, just, I can just take this bike, I can just take the, the skirt, and then I can drive it and then, and then leave it. I don't have to take it back, I can leave it. It all sounds, you know, this can't be true. Did you have a problem communicating that through to, to the public at all? You know, it, it, it's remarkable how quickly people learn um, how to use a shared system. You know, I'll, I'll say first, just kind of imagining not using a car. And when you look at the, the cities in the world that people point to as real examples of kind of a bike first uh, transportation system, like the Amsterdam, Copenhagen, they didn't always look like that. The 1970s, uh, these cities look like any other European city. Um, and it was a energy price crisis and frankly, real public policy leadership that transformed these cities, especially the downtown areas away from cars into micromobility. Many started with more bike lanes and then blocking out parts of the cities to cars altogether. There were violent protests against the um, moving away from cars, but seeing the, these kind of the leading cities of the world shows that cities can change. And we are, we are right now going through an energy crisis. We are right now going through a, um, a climate crisis. There was worries about air pollution in the 1970s. A lot of the elements are similar and you're likely similar to the 1970s gonna get some pushback from residents because change is hard. Change is hard. 
But over time, people see the benefits. People see the cities being cleaner, their air being cleaner, the congestion going away, portability increase. And so it's going to take time to, 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 to have that conversation. And then and the second, you know, how do you use it? I, I don't think shared micromobility is the only way uh, to move around a city, but it is certainly a, a great way to do it because it avoids that personal ownership. I think one of the great opportunities that we have in the future is that not everybody needs to own a vehicle for themselves. The reason why 95% of the cars are unused is because everybody feels like I need to own a car all the time. And then you actually don't need to move around all the time. A shared system allows people to use a smaller amount of fixed assets and then serve so many more people. And the way you do that, you have to make sure that there's reliable um, access to micromobility wherever they are. You have to make sure that they can start where they want and go where they want to go. But when you do that, you dramatically reduce the consumption in transportation as well. You improve cost and affordability and absolutely reduce your impact on the environment when you don't have to build 6 million bikes for 6 million people. If you can serve 6 million people with 100,000 bikes, think about what that can unleash and the amount of um, improvements we can do to our consumption. Again, that's going to take time as well because we're so used to personal ownership. But I do think when people see the benefits, many, many people will start gravitating towards a shared micro-ability future. You were talking there about future opportunities, but what are the future opportunities for Lime? What's next? How do you continue to innovate? Well, I think Lime is at the infancy of where we're going. One of the things that you see in um, you know, many of our markets is that you know, we're, we're only a couple years in. We're still a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the overall transportation system. And I think there's a couple ways we need to continue to innovate. So we're the world's largest scooter operator. We're in 30 plus countries, 280 plus cities. We're the world's largest e-bike operator outside of China. But mode expansion is one major way to, um, to innovate. So when we started, when we saw the scooters, originally we saw that they were a little bit younger, maybe skew slightly male. Um, there's also lots of instances where I can't use a scooter. If I want to go to the grocery store, I can't keep the groceries and stay on a scooter. When we introduced the e-bike, we saw the age group go up. We saw much more, we saw a balance of women and men. And also when people need to go to the grocery store, we have a basket um, in front that people can put their groceries outside. It allowed us to reach a different use case and a different demographic. But there are still lots of use cases where micromobility isn't amazing. For example, if it rains or if it gets too cold or if I have to carry uh, my child with me. And so when I think about where we want to innovate, we want to slowly build out different modes so that across all of our modes, we can serve all the needs and all the demographics that um, in any single city. And that there's a day very, very soon where you and I can walk out of our office and never have to touch a car. So you're gonna see mode innovation. You're gonna see us innovate on our hardware. We have the best hardware um, in the industry. We're the only operator at this point to build and, and R&D our own hardware because we designed them for rider preference. We designed them for cities. And we're gonna see us continue to innovate on the next generation of hardware. And you're gonna to start to see us, continue to see us innovate around software. This is something that riders may not see, but we think a lot about how do we deploy? How do we optimize our routing when we charge so that we're driving less, uh, so that we are using less energy? This allows us to serve people with the same 10,000 um, scooters in a city. We're gonna feel far more reliable because we have the best deployment technology and we're gonna do that with the least amount of energy. All these types of innovation 
is going to allow us to really deliver on that promise of a carbon-free transportation future and hopefully bring more people onto the platform. Will you be satisfied until there's a carbon-free world right now? Will you feel like, do you, know, do you feel like that is uh, actually part of your job? Is that one of your responsibilities? Absolutely. I, I, if you ask anybody who works at Lime, um, and I think back to the hardest moments of the pandemic when it really seemed quite bleak. It wasn't clear if we were going to make it. When you ask people, why did you stay? Why did you stay to fight? People say, because of the mission. Because of the mission to decarbonize transportation. Because the fight is so important. Because there is no path to achieving the Paris Climate Accord. There's no path to solving this climate crisis unless we fundamentally shift our transportation system. That's what make people want to stay at line and fight for this um, important mission. And so our mission is not over until we can say to the world, to ourselves, to the communities we serve, that transportation is no longer a problem. Transportation is part of the solution. And part of this is everything we're doing internally to improve our own carbon emissions. And a big part of it is convincing cities to shift more of their infrastructure and to convince riders to shift their personal transportation instance out of cars into public transportation, which should always be at the heart of any good transportation system to walking, biking, scootering, other lightweight um, vehicles. But we are we are not going to be done until we walk out of our door and say, you know, us as a city, us as individuals, we are drastically limiting our emissions from transportation. That is absolutely the goal. That was Wayne Ting, CEO of Lime. For more business interviews, news and the very best analysis, check out the Evening Standard newspaper or head online to standard.co.uk forward slash business where you'll find our live blog bringing you up-to-the-minute developments on the biggest stories. How to be a CEO is back on Monday morning. I'd love to see you then. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season, when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.